Milan. Welcome to High Heels and Heartache. I'm so excited to be back with you. During the podcast's hiatus, I've been setting up some really awesome interviews for you guys to hear. And I've been working with a friend of the podcast on a big, big project, which I will announce in a couple months. So get ready for that. Um, Today, I have one of the best friends of the podcast, the person who was brave enough to do my first episode ever, Dr. Candice Creaseman. And she's here to give us some tips about silencing your inner critic. Um, Dr. Creaseman is a licensed professional counselor supervisor with a master's in rehabilitation counseling and psychology and a doctorate in counseling and counselor education. She's been in practice for 15 years, working with survivors of domestic violence and sexual trauma, individuals with addiction, chronic pain, mood and personality disorders, and severe mental illness. She uses DBT, acceptance and commitment therapy, and meditation to help clients work through trauma and live value-based lives. For those listeners who are in the Raleigh-Durham area, Dr. Creaseman is putting on a workshop called My Body, My Home on September 14th. It's a three-hour workshop on intuitive eating that also incorporates yoga, and it's meant for those who are struggling with body image issues. You have until September 7th to sign up, and you can find the link for that in the show notes. Um, If you're unable to make it to that particular workshop, you are lucky enough to be able to hear Dr. Creaseman right now talk to us about how to silence that inner critic. So coming up, Dr. Candace Creaseman. Hey, Dr. Creaseman, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So not only do you have a thriving counseling practice in Raleigh, North Carolina, but you are branching out and putting on events for people that aren't your patients. And you have a big one coming up on September 14th. It's called My Body, My Home. What are you doing? So we're really excited about this event. It's uh, focusing on body acceptance, which I think is, I know it is so relevant to me uh, mm. and my experience of my body. And I talk with my clients so much about, you know, their own negative feelings about their bodies and the, how that manifests as struggles with food and struggles in relationships even. Um, so this event uh, is based on a practice called intuitive eating. Uh, and you can look that up. There's a great book on Amazon that gives all the background on the content. So we're going to do intuitive eating, which is a way of reconnecting with your body's cues around hunger and around fullness so that really you can start to regain trust in your body uh, rather than stay stuck in this diet cycle of deprivation and then overeating. Um, So we're going to do intuitive eating, and then we're also going to have a yoga practice to help integrate and really um, practice the uh, body acceptance in a physical way. So we got these kind of two layers, the cognitive and the emotional piece of learning intuitive eating, and then the physical piece with yoga. Wow, that sounds awesome. So it's going to be on September 14th, and people can register until the 7th? Yes, exactly. Awesome. And do they just go to your website for that? So the website to register is wellness-collaborative.org backslash my body, my home. Okay. I'll put a link to that on the show notes. So anybody that's interested can, can get on there and come see you on the 14th. Sounds wonderful. Well, that's kind of like a perfect bridge to what we're going to be talking about today. Um, what, in one of your previous workshops, you were helping people uh, with their inner critic. And I think that's something that we all struggle with. So can you tell us what is an inner critic and why is it so important to heal that inner critic? 
Yeah, so the inner critic is really that voice that we maybe don't even notice that often, um, that is just really judgmental and harsh uh, about pretty much anything and everything we can be doing. Um, so it's the voice that tells you that your body doesn't look right. It's the voice that tells you you're stupid or not packing the diapers. It's the, oh. you know, it's the, it's the voice that basically takes any moment that could be um, really joyful or exciting or even just neutral and just ruins it basically. Yeah. Um, and it's just so present for us because it's um, built in effectively to our neurological hardwiring. Okay. So where does that voice come from and do some people have like a meaner inner critic than other people? And why would they have that? Like, where does that come from? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, my way of conceptualizing this inner critic is that it has two parts to it. So the part that I mentioned, that's kind of the hardwired part, that's called the default mode network. And that is this like series of brain functions that is operating when our mind isn't focused on something really specific. Um, so interestingly, the default mode network, it uh, is also a big piece of what we use to conceptualize our sense of self. Um, the real bummer about the default mode network is that it's not just a neutral observer. It has an inherently negative bias. Um, okay. So it's, it trends toward negative content. So here we have this system that's running pretty much in the background constantly, like this computer program we can't shut off. Um, and it's geared to be negative for mm. the reason. Okay, so it's actually beneficial in a survival kind of way for us to have a little bit of a negative bias because then we are more alert to potential threats. Right. So um, if I'm just kind of walking along in the savannah 10,000 years ago and uh, if, if my kind of internal programming is just set to neutral or positive, then I might be noticing the lovely breeze or, you know, attending to how beautiful the trees are. And then I don't notice that there's a panther stalking me. Right. <laughs> Okay. So, real useful when we needed to survive on a daily basis, not as useful when we aren't surrounded by threats in the same way um, that we, you know, were when we were early humans. So that's one piece of it is that default mode network, the hardwiring. The other piece of it is our wounded story. So that's the part that's really kind of personalized to us. Uh, it's based on the experiences that we've had with early caregivers, the messages that we've received um, early in life about who we are, what we're capable of, what we deserve. And so to that question of can some people have a harsher inner critic? Absolutely, uh, because some people have much harsher upbringings. Um, so I think there's a strong correlation between having a more negative upbringing and having a more negative inner critic. And there are certainly folks who um, just have more built-in resilience factors. So they might have a really difficult upbringing and still come away with a minimal inner critic. So there's always, there are always exceptions to that rule. Yeah. Yeah. So you've discussed before about if you want to heal that inner critic, that, that wounded story portion of your inner critic, um, that you have to invite your inner critic in. Mm -hmm. And that was super surprising to me because I felt like that should be like, no, get, get this out of my head. So why is that an important step to healing that voice inside you that might not be the most, that doesn't have the most positive outlook on the things that you might do or think or say? Mm -hmm. I think that's a great question because I think it is our urge to reject anything that's unpleasant you know, and to, mm -hmm. so we tell ourselves, we'll just stop thinking that, just to think about something else, just stop it. But all of that is happening in the same space, which is your brain. Mm -hmm. So um, effectively, when we tell ourselves to not think about something, we're just building another neural pathway to the thing. <laughs> <laughs> so, so for example, if I say, don't think about a pink elephant, 
oh, too late. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the damage is done when we tell ourselves to not think about something, but that's understandably our, our go-to urge. So this alternative approach to invite the inner critic in is really um, asking us to take this observer role. Um, so rather than being caught up in the story of the inner critic, which is where we typically stay, we are inviting the inner critic to be an object that we observe and we notice with as little judgment as possible. And I like to use the example that we tend to experience our inner critic as if we are in the movie Jurassic Park, like running away from the dinosaur. <laughs> so to invite the inner critic in, to move into that role of observer is to effectively step out of the movie and into the theater. Okay. Yeah. Because, like, the velociraptor isn't that scary if it's you are. scary. Yeah. And we also have the benefit from our seat in the theater of acknowledging that the velociraptor on the screen is not real. Mm -hmm. And neither is our inner critic in terms of the, the truth of its content. It's just another thought, you know, but we treat it as if it has so much more power because we see it as being just true and etched into our very being when it's really, it's just another thought. Like your grocery list is a thought. Like Mary had a little lamb is a thought. All of these things are the same sort of just neurons firing. And so if we can step back and notice our thoughts as a process, then we immediately have more power over which ones we give our attention to. That makes a lot of sense because I know for me, like my inner critic for some reason, I've just like decided that she's right. Yeah, yeah. But it's like real convincing. Yeah. 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 But if you step back and just see it as like, no, no, that's just a thought. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that what she says is the truth. Right. That, that's a great way to think about it because you do have to like listen to those thoughts in order to be like, no, wait, that doesn't actually make sense with all of this other information that I have. Yes, and that's a great strategy is kind of acknowledging when the inner critic's assessment doesn't match the data. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like if you if your inner critic tells you like, oh like you look horrible in whatever outfit, but then you go to work and people are like, Oh, love that shirt, or like, oh, you look really pretty in that, like then that inner critic like does not match with the rest of the data. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's and, that's, and that's, I think that's a great example of what we could call skillful means, right? So skillful means is like when we take a really useful first step in a positive direction and we still have a little ways to go. So part of what can be problematic about stopping at just the data assessment is then we can get stuck on this um, seesaw of self-esteem okay so we can our inner critic is saying you're a terrible human being and nobody likes you um your environment is saying you're a real winner everybody loves you <laughs> so <laughs> then you're trying to like make sense of that and you end up just kind of swinging back and forth between i'm awful i'm wonderful i'm awful i'm wonderful when both of those experiences are thoughts Okay. Yeah. So we can acknowledge that when we get data that doesn't confirm what our inner critic says, we can use that not just to swing in the other direction and decide that we're great, but to acknowledge that, oh, wow, thoughts are really fickle. Yeah. <laughs> I should really not believe everything I think. Oh my God. That's such a great way to put it. I stole that. So. Okay. <laughs> But that, that's an amazing way to think of it because usually we just, like, like I said, we just like pass these thoughts out, out as like, these are correct. Yeah. This is 100% the truth when, mm -hmm. but, but both of those things aren't the truth. The truth is probably like a little bit in the middle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Typically. Wow. Okay. So all of us have this inner critic. Um, and why is it? that this inner critic can cause problems in relationships? That's a great question. And I feel like that was the piece of, of this work that had the most 
head scratching responses from folks um, and the most aha moments. So think about it. If, if your relationship with yourself is the reference point for how you are going to build relationships with other people, if you are engaged with this inner critic, totally bought into what it has to say, and it thinks that you're really awful, um, then a few things might happen in your relationships. One is you might settle in relationships, and this is friendships, family relationships, romantic. This is like across the board. You might settle for relationships that, uh, where the person treats you like you're awful because that's consistent with what your inner critic has to say about you. Oh. Yeah, so that's one piece. That's one way that can manifest is with engaging with people that treat us the same way our inner critic treats us. The other way is that we can feel so defensive because we're so used to defending ourselves against our own inner critic that we find threats in our relationships that, that aren't actually real, you know? So mm. that's, that's where we, you know, are angrier with people or we assume that people um, have bad intentions. You know, we, we take things very personally when someone doesn't call or when someone sends a text that could be interpreted some kind of way. Then our default way of interacting with other people is to basically assume that they mean us some level of harm. So if your inner critic is always telling you that you are not as smart as everybody else. Oh yeah. Unlikable on whatever. Mm -hmm. And when you get even the smallest bit of information from the outside world that in a teeny tiniest way might support what your inner critic is telling you, you automatically assume that that's the message that the person is trying to send you as well. Exactly. Yep. I think that's a perfect way of framing it. Yeah. And oh, so wow. you're like, then we are, um, you know, not real effective because we're making mm -hmm. assumptions about what other people intend or about what other people think. Um, and maybe that means we lash out at people. Maybe mm -hmm. that means we withdraw from people, but regardless, we end up disconnected because we are just so entrenched in that inner critic story. And if you're, maybe subconsciously, like looking for information that falls in line with what your inner critic is telling you, all information you receive is going to fall in line with that inner critic. Exactly. It's sort of like the, when we don't notice our inner critic, um, the, the story of the inner critic, that you're unlikable, you're not smart enough, whatever, that's like putting on this pair of goggles. And so everything we experience goes through that filter. Oh, that's a great way of putting it. And you can, you have to, again, invite that inner critic in mm -hmm. to be able to take those goggles off. Exactly. Yeah. And that feels like such a risky option for folks, I think. So I just, like, I want to put it out there. I have a lot of compassion for how hard this work is, you know. I mean, I, I talk about these concepts as if they're, they are simple, but they're not easy to practice, you know? Um, yeah, because that would be hard. Like, I just think about, you know, like when I look in the mirror before I go to work mm -hmm. and I, like just the kind of thoughts that go through my head are like, oh, my hair looks bad today. Uh, you know, like this is kind of like a stupid outfit I have on, like for this laundry day or whatever. Mm -hmm. And, but I, for me, like I need to, when those thoughts happen, I need to stop and be like, whoa, 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 Kendall Ann. This is just a thought. This is not the truth. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then, then I go into work and let's say someone just looks at me in a normal way. I think they're thinking, what a dumb outfit she has. But they, they're probably like, those shoes are cool. Yeah. Or they could be thinking, what am I going to have for lunch? Because like, yeah. <laughs> what people are thinking, but our inner critic, I think, adds pressure um, to us to do just that, you know, because we're so, we feel so fragile, so vulnerable to other people's judgments of us when we're overloaded with judging ourselves that we put all this extra energy into trying to read people's minds and it's just useless. God, that's a great way to think of it too that you're expending all of this energy that doesn't need to be expended in that way. Yeah. And that's, that's the way I like to pitch it to my clients, especially to, you know, my, my women clients who 
are just expending tremendous amounts of energy on their inner critic around their bodies, around their weight, around their parenting, around so many things. And it's like, do you realize that you could have taken over the world 17 times? <laughs> All of the energy that is going into disliking or hating yourself. You know, it is so interesting that you say that because I was recently going through some old pictures and I remember thinking at the time that that picture was taken, like, mm -hmm. oh, what a horrible picture. Oh, I look, look how fat my arm looks in this picture. Da, 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 da. But after some time, I look at those pictures and I'm like, that's a really nice picture of me. Mm-hmm. Perfect example. Don't believe everything you think because it's going to change. Yeah. You know, so we, we act like our thoughts are, you know, not just true, but that they're permanent and they're oh. just not. Oh, what a great way to think of that. Like that your thoughts are not permanent. No. Only, I mean, they're I literally be... like electrical blips. That's really all they are. Wow. So not only can your thought be incorrect, God forbid, <laughs> that you think is not the truth. But also, these things that you think, they are not permanent. Right. And it's the only thing that makes them permanent is practicing them over and over again. So maybe when you, when, for me, when I look at myself in the mirror before I go to work, I, I need to practice like finding something good to see. And then when people look at me that day, I will think that they're looking at the good thing and not necessarily the bad thing. Yeah, I, th I think that could be a very positive strategy to make some change. I also like to um, suggest that people um, to actually practice the noticing of the inner critic to step into that observer role. Mm -hmm. uh, we can use some really specific and very simple language to, to be the observer. So when you have that thought, oh my God, my hair is so stupid. Um, <laughs> you might say, oh, I notice I'm thinking my hair is stupid. Okay. And then, silly, and then but that shifts your perspective. Now you're not the person with the stupid hair. You're the person having the thought that their hair looks some kind of way. Yeah. And then, then like another layer is like, and also this is just electricity moving through my brain. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This is not right, wrong, true, false. Yeah. An impermanent, like little blip in my brain. Mm -hmm. And I will not let that control me. Exactly. So, and then we, we kind of have like two pieces there. So on the one hand, we do want to acknowledge the impermanence. We want to acknowledge, yep, just electrons firing. That's a path that's very well worn in my brain is to judge myself, you know, harshly. And we want to then offer ourselves some compassion because even though these thoughts are fleeting, these thoughts are not necessarily accurate or true, they do still have an emotional impact. And we want to show up to that piece with compassion for ourselves. So if we continue on, we say, okay, I notice I have the thought that my hair looks stupid. That's just electrons firing. I don't need to buy into that. And it's hard to feel that way about myself. Oh, that's important. That self-compassion. Yeah. So, so important. And I think that's the part we tend to kind of jump over when we're trying to work with our thinking and to change our thinking. Um, we don't necessarily hold space for the, how hard it is to think so negatively of ourselves. Yeah. So you said before that, your inner critic comes from like your wounded story. Mm -hmm. So whose voice is the inner critic? Like wh who, who is that talking to yeah. us? Yeah, I think it's different for everyone, but I think in my work, like in my own personal work on inner critic and in client work, um, it tends to be the voice of someone who was an early caregiver, who was really instrumental in um, shaping the way we think about ourselves. So that's typically a parent um, and, you know, or whoever you most sought love and connection and safety from when you were a little tiny. Okay. Yeah. And so what's interesting is that a lot of my clients will reflect on that and they'll say, oh, you know, my parents were great. You know, they never hit me. They never yelled at me. Um, you know, I just, I don't think that could possibly be why I'm so hard on myself. 
but then you dig a little deeper and maybe those same parents, um, you know, were really loving and attentive when you were getting straight A's on your report card uh, and were maybe kind of cold and distant when you got a B. Um, mm. Maybe those same parents were really kind to you, but were really, really hard on your brother. Okay. So there are all these ways because kids are sponges, right? And I mean, they have such an intelligence and an awareness that we don't give them credit for. And so children are just constantly soaking up and, and making sense of messages, even if they weren't intended for them. So if, if you got the B and your parents were like, uh, okay, that's nice. But when you got an A, they were like, oh, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. Then what that was telling your inner critic is bees are not okay and you are kind of like unlovable exactly if, if you get that b the a is is the benchmark for love you need to get a's exactly yep that perfectionism is really the only path to getting love yeah oh and when you say that like i'm thinking right now about like being compassionate to yourself like that's a hard way to live your life yeah think that the only thing acceptable is perfection absolutely yeah i mean it'll wear you out because mm-hmm. perfection is not really attainable but that doesn't stop us from trying so even if your parents had the best intentions in the world mm-hmm. because you were just a little walking sponge yeah you were getting messages that probably were were incorrect mm-hmm. but then those those neurons started to fire that way and what fires together wires together or exactly. wires together fires i forget which one <laughs> <laughs> and so that's what you interpreted as truth exactly and that's what gets internalized um as a sense of self mm-hmm. as well as a sense of um kind of like an inner parent, right? And so that's where so many people end up with harsh inner critics and in really contentious relationships with their parents. Mm. Because I think, especially when we can very clearly connect our inner critic to our upbringing, we experience this seemingly insatiable longing for our parents to show up and get it right. Yeah. Um, and what we don't realize is we haven't interacted with our actual parents, uh, at least on an emotional level, typically since we were children. What we have most been interacting with is our internalized image and understanding of that parent. Whoa. So that's like getting kind of meta about it, but that's kind of the deeper work of the inner critic is sort of acknowledging it's this like really radical um, acceptance of ownership and responsibility for the relationship that we have with ourselves, that it's not your parents' fault necessarily. They may have played a really big role, but ultimately all the work and all the possibility for change and healing, you already have it. Oh, that's such a good way to think about it. But also, you're going to have to come back on here, and we're going to have to deep dive into that whole thing. We can do that. (laughs) But, like, I'm thinking about, like, personally, I have an older sister who is, first of all, like, drop-dead gorgeous, Mm. and she is an extremely hard worker. Mm -hmm. And I can remember, and she's several years older than me. I won't say how many years, but several. (laughs) And I remember as a kid, her receiving so much praise for being such a hard worker and mm-hmm. for being drop dead gorgeous. And I can remember just like not receiving that same praise. And so automatically putting my sister on this pedestal of the pretty hard worker. Mm-hmm. And that I was never going to measure up to that. And that, so I get that, like that your inner critic is formed in, in a weird way, just because I didn't get that same praise. I got praise for other things, mm-hmm. but because I didn't get that praise, that meant I wasn't those things. Yeah. Yeah. I can hear that the sense of less than, you know, mm-hmm. that shows up around that experience. And that's just a crazy thing. Like really 
why aren't we celebrating the people in our families for those amazing qualities they have instead of it being internalized as, oh shit, I don't have that. Well, and I think that goes back to the other piece of um, how this happens in childhood, you know, is because aside from being sponges and having a lot of awareness and a lot of intelligence, children also have a lot of skills that they have to gain, you know, a lot of perspective taking skills. So, you know, if you pair being really sensitive as a child with not having all the cognitive capacity to have the thought you just described, which is, you know, maybe I could celebrate my sister. There's, you know, plenty of love to go around, Like that's not how kids operate because they're in survival mode when it comes to love and belonging, you know, and, if the environment doesn't show up to support them in that, to help them feel like they are cared for, they are safe emotionally as well as physically, um, they don't have the capacity to do all that sort of adult level thinking and reflecting on it. So that's how we can maybe gain some compassion for ourselves in, in feeling stuck with some of the mm-hmm. early messages is that, well, yeah, if you were a grown up when all that stuff happened, you would feel differently, but you were a kid. So what you're saying is, at the time in our lives <laughs> that we were getting the information most crucial to form us as human beings, we also had the least amount of skills to process that information. It's not good odds. <laughs> no. It's not, not real pleasing math, but there it is. <laughs> and that's so important to think about, you know, when you're talking about letting that inner critic in, the next time you're standing in front of that mirror, God forbid, trying on a bathing suit. Oh gosh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You need to think about like, okay, maybe, maybe I could get a little healthier, but also maybe the reason why I think so poorly about the way my body looks in this bathing suit is because when I was least capable of processing information about how I viewed my body, I was given tons of information. Exactly. And then to add a layer to that, as a woman in a female body, you weren't just getting messages about what your body was supposed to look like from your parents, or even if you got incredibly healthy and positive messages from your parents or family about that, the world is telling you be tiny mm-hmm. or, or else, basically. Mm-hmm. you know, so that adds a whole other layer of vulnerability, you know, and then we're not even talking about when we're not even talking about our bodies, like when we're just talking about the way we interact with the world. Mm -hmm. Like if like I have a a problem about, I get so nervous. People are going to view me as like aggressive or mean if I stand up for myself. Mm -hmm. But that's what the world has told us from the time that we were very little. We heard strong women be described as bitchy or mean or nasty as some people like to reference strong women as exactly and and that made us that made our inner critic like hey 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 self don't act like that because that means you are all of those things I just listed exactly and I think another layer of that is not only did we develop an inner critic that says don't act that way but we also internalized um, this sense that even feeling angry feeling frustrated feeling indignant is not okay Mm. these completely natural normal human emotions are made unavailable to us by our social learning wow then it just comes out in some way that maybe even reinforces the stereotype, right? Because if you're already not allowed to have a feeling and then, oh, lo and behold, you have the feeling, it's really hard to express that in a way that's effective if it's kind of the, the deck is already stacked against you. Mm-hmm. Then, you. then you start writing things in work like, as per my last email. Per my last email. results. <laughs> <laughs> of bottled up anger absolutely (laughs) when you really should write like i already said yeah x y and z okay to be clear (laughs) (laughs) okay so we've talked now you know social norms Mm -hmm. the society sending us messages 
our family units sending us messages at peer groups when we were little, teachers, all of this information. We were not ready to process this information, but we have it. It formed this inner critic. We've mm-hmm. already talked about, you know, having compassion for the inner critic, actually um, looking at it when we feel this way and, and acknowledging, okay, this is a feeling I'm having. These are thoughts. What else can we do to heal that, that inner critic that's living in us? Mm-hmm. So the compassion part, I think, has a lot of different manifestations. So I think pro- the most powerful way of expressing compassion for me personally is to say it is so hard to feel that way. And something that can help us actually buy into that compassion is to actually see ourselves or particularly to see the inner critic part of ourselves as a child. Because it's way harder to be mean or dismissive of a little tiny person, you know? Yeah. So if we can use that image, connect that image of a a younger version of ourselves and let that be who we see when we encounter that inner critic, we have a much better chance of one, not buying into it because, you know, if my son tells me there's a monster in the closet, I'm like, um, no. And I'm sorry, you feel that way. Like, how can I help you with your fear? (laughs) Yeah. I don't believe him. Um, but I do believe his fear is real. And you probably think, why does he think there's a monster there? Yeah, like how can I nurture him to feel safer? Yeah, yeah. So there, we want to treat ourselves in that way, which is very different than just pitying ourselves or coddling ourselves. You know, compassion is is a really, I mean, it's a warrior kind of act. It's yeah. vulnerable, but it's powerful. Yeah. That's one piece is we can just kind of engage with ourselves and engage with the inner critic as a child. Um, The other piece is we can engage in really intentional self-care, and that's the very practical behavioral aspect of compassion. So self-care is, I think, really kind of overused. I mean, I'm glad we're talking about it, but I don't necessarily think we're talking about it in the most effective way a lot of times because, I mean, chances are the minute I say self-care, 99% 99% of people are thinking bubble bath and man. That's exactly what I was thinking. Right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> yes, and. <laughs> Self-care, I think, for it to be really impactful, it has to come from a place of very um, compassionate intention. So we don't want to just be checking a box with our self-care activities. And we don't want our self-care activities to be things we feel like we should be doing for ourselves, but don't actually value, you know? So for okay, me, yeah, for me to go get a, a manicure, it's like that would, yeah, it would be fun for five minutes and I'm going to get home. I'm going to have to open, you know, a jelly jar. <laughs> <laughs> and it, so like it's the shelf life is just too short for me to feel good about that. <laughs> so, uh, but for me to have 20 minutes to read a book, to have, you know, time to meditate, to have time to play my guitar. Like those are acts of really nurturing self-care because they connect to things that I deeply value. So self-care really has two parts. It has to be coming from a place of wanting yourself to feel better, wanting to feel you deserve kindness, um, really accepting that it's okay to meet your needs so that's the compassion piece. And then it has to come from a place of actually connecting the things that matter to you. So maybe if you get manicures and that makes you feel like powerful and, you know, you feel good when you look down and like you're typing. Yeah. Like, like that would be, that could be self-care for you. It absolutely could be self-care. Yeah. It's not that the manicures and the bubble baths are not self-care. It's that I think we just go about it too flippantly. Yeah. It could be really more powerful, more meaningful if we just did it on purpose and connected it very specifically to our own values. So maybe while you're getting your manicure or while you're taking your bubble bath, if you could be maybe mentally processing good things about yourself while you're doing that. Telling yourself like, hey, I did a, I did a really good job at work this week. Or like, you know what? Like, I'm doing a really good job of raising my kids. Mm-hmm. That's an important part while we're doing these things that are considered self-care. 
And if, if that feels too unavailable, because I think for some folks, if their inner critic is just really raging, mm -hmm. then it's hard to buy into the other extreme, which is how, you know, all the things are doing well. Um, I think another option is to just say, you know, I'm proud that I'm taking time to care for myself. Mm -hmm. I deserve to feel good about myself. I deserve to feel whole and to do things that I enjoy. Um, so I think we can really kind of emphasize that we are worth taking care of. Yeah. And I'll tell you that, like, I have a raging inner critic. Like she is a for real velociraptor. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and that way I know. Yeah. And, and it, I did not get to the part of like saying nice things to myself in a straight line. Yeah. The way that I had to get there was like to say what I was grateful for. Mm. And then I had to connect that to the things that I did that got me the thing I was grateful for. Ooh, that is a powerful and important point. Because gratitude is just an incredible way of... Um, connecting to wellness in general, but I think gratitude also does really help. It's a great uh, alternative to just buying into the inner critic, you know, so it may not connect directly to what the inner critic is saying. So let's say my inner critic is saying, you know, um, oh gosh, you're the worst mom ever. How could you possibly have yelled at your adorable little three-year-old like you did yesterday? Um, so <laughs> what your inner critic is saying, then maybe I can say, you know, I, I'm so grateful that um, I get to have the flexibility of working in my own business, right? Mm -hmm. so, that doesn't connect in any way <laughs> to the thing my inner critic is saying. And that's almost in an important aspect of it because now what we're doing is we're, we're carving a new path that's gratitude based rather than criticism based. Yeah. But, like I, when I was driving home from work, I was thinking like, Oh my God, I'm so grateful that I have this awesome job that I love. Mm -hmm. And then I had to like say to myself, Kendall Ann, the reason you have this awesome job is because like yeah. you, 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 you know, worked hard in college. You got your master's degree. You applied to a million jobs on LinkedIn and you didn't give up when you were constantly being rejected. Yeah. But that's the way that I had to get there. I, I couldn't connect like leaving my job and thinking like, Oh my God, I'm so awesome. Like mm -hmm. it took me up. I had to go down like a kind of windy path to get there. I think that's such a great example because I think it totally highlights how how safe it is to actually tune into the inner critic because I think what you just highlighted there is your inherent wisdom. You know, you had an inherent wisdom that suggested to you from some space within, hey, why don't you feel some gratitude? Why don't you connect that gratitude to, you know, your efforts and your abilities? Mm -hmm. Like that came from within you. you. You didn't hear on the radio, hey, if you're feeling really down on yourself, you should probably think of, you know, be grateful. Like you just, mm -hmm. right? So contacting the parts of ourselves, like the inner critic that are ugly and dark and harmful, um, can actually put us in contact with our deepest wisdom. It's sort of like you turn like the velociraptor into like a unicorn. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The velociraptor was just a unicorn waiting to escape. <laughs> okay, so now here is a huge question. Let's say you have someone in your life that you know has a velociraptor mm. inner critic inside of them. Mm. What, well, how can you? I mean, we don't have to like heal, heal everybody, but how can you, maybe it's your, your family member or your good friend or your, your partner, how, how do you help them heal their inner critic? Um, you know, this may be a weird thing coming from a therapist. Um, and <laughs> I would just not try to heal anyone other than yourself. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So, and not because, you know, you're not a therapist, just because that, um, 
I think it is such a, a worthy and noble urge that we have, you know, especially when we feel ourselves waking up to our own suffering in a way that is new for us, you know, and we start to feel, oh my gosh, I can actually have a negative thought about myself and let it go and it doesn't ruin my day. You know, that that is a really powerful experience that we understandably want to share with the people we love who may still be stuck. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think ironically, the best thing that we can do for the people in our lives that are struggling is to hold space for them just as they are. You know, is you know to remind them of how we feel about them, mm-hmm. um, to hold them accountable for their behavior. You know, so if they're acting in their own inner critic and lashing out at us, we say no, that's not okay. You know, mm-hmm. and so I think that's the best way, honestly, that we can have an impact is to kind of bring this very non-judgmental, um, compassionate way of being to the people we care about, and then just hold them, hold them accountable, like expect them to be the sort of people we know they are and not don't expect them to be the kind of people that their inner critic says they are. So if someone says something negative about themselves, we shouldn't be like, don't say that. You can say that, but the only person you're making feel better is yourself. (laughs) Yeah. So maybe, maybe a better, what we can do for the people we love is to say like, I disagree with that because I think that you look amazing in those shoes. I, yeah, I think whatever our um, compassion says is best in the moment. You know, I think we can trust that. We can, that our compassion is is our inherent wisdom, you know? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think we could say, I really disagree, just like you said. We might also say, gosh, it hurts me to hear you say that about yourself. You mm-hmm. know, we, I wish you, I wish you could see you the way I saw you. Mm. Um, and so there's a lot of vulnerability in that, right? Like it's, yeah not very confrontational. It's very open and loving um, and hard, you know, especially when we think about uh, engaging in some of the relationships with early caregivers, you know, so um, we can feel a real defensiveness or real um, anger toward people, not just because of what they may have done to us, but when we see them continuing to harm themselves. um, Yeah. So that's, then we bring compassion to that part of our experience. We can say, you know, it's so hard to feel this anger. It's so hard to feel this frustration and to want connection with this person and to feel like it's not available. So we don't have to change anything to decrease the difficulty of it. uh, Yeah. Being compassionate. And it's so interesting that you say that because one of the, one of the things that made me realize like, oh shit, I got a problem with the way I talk to myself. Mm-hmm was my best friend Gretchen was like, the way that you talk about yourself is very different than the way that I talk about you. Mm. And it, it made me like pause, like, and be like, well, oh shit. Yeah. What a generous thing to say. Yeah. And I was, and then I saw this, it just so happened. I saw this meme that was like, if you wouldn't say it to your best friend, don't say it to yourself. Mm-hmm. And it, it happened in like <laughs> it, it happened in like a couple of days, and I was like, "Oh, universe, okay, I yeah. gotcha. Yeah. I'm listening. Okay, that's some self work I need to do." <laughs> so I think that that's so it's so important. And so we've talked about just to kind of wrap it up. Mm-hmm. We've talked about compassion is such an important part for those of us who are struggling with this inner critic. Is there anything else that you think we really need to be working on to, to get that velociraptor under control. Yeah. I mean, I think if we acknowledge that that velociraptor is just a part of our, our minds functioning, um, then the same tools that we would use to just kind of rein our minds in, in any capacity are worth putting energy into. So I mean, for the folks that I work with that want to do inner critic work, um, I pretty much insist that they start a meditation practice. <laughs> Just mm. because, um, you know, we have to be able to cultivate the space between thinking and believing. And the only way that I know to do that is through meditation. Um, so if you can do, and 
I'm kind of shifting the longer I do it. Um, I shift away from trying to get folks to do some amount every day to trying to get folks to do longer chunks, even if it's less often. So I have found that if I spend like 30 minutes in meditation, I get some noticeable benefits. So even if I do that once a week, as opposed mm -hmm. to trying to do five minutes every day, because I think a lot of people try to force themselves into that kind of routine. Um, it's, it's just as fruitful for me. So find a way to get a meditation practice going because that will 100% increase your capacity to notice that inner critic when it shows up before you get bought into it. Yeah. And you, you have some meditations available on your website, right? I do. And okay. um, they're also available through Insight Timer, which is okay. a meditation app. Okay. Um, and there's, I actually have a course called Healing Your Inner Critic on the Insight Timer app um, that you can download the app and get access to the meditations for free. Um, if you want access to the courses, I think there's a, a either a monthly or a yearly subscription fee. Okay. Um, but it's so many teachers on there, so much great content, um, and just a really wonderful tool to get your practice going. Well, I have learned so much from you today. And now I like in my mind, I'm like painting a picture of like, okay, next time I get a thought that's negative about myself, I'm going to picture a unicorn wearing like a velociraptor costume. <laughs> you take the edge off of most <laughs> And I just have to like, yeah, okay, unicorn, you better take that velociraptor costume off because that's not who you really are. <laughs> and and if we want to attend your um retreat kind of my body my home uh we need to register by september 7th and we can do that on the website that will be linked in the show notes absolutely well thank you so much season two episode one you are here season one episode one so you're just going to have to come on every single year for the rest I, of your life. I would be so grateful. It's such a <laughs> privilege to talk to you and so much fun. So thank you. Well, we love having you on. So thank you so much, Dr. Creaseman. You're welcome. Have a good one. Once again, thank you so much, Dr. Creaseman, for coming on the podcast sure you listeners can tell I absolutely adore her and she gives us such fabulous advice each time she's on here and I'm going to keep begging her to return and hopefully she will keep coming back and if you are in the Raleigh Durham area uh, on September the 14th make sure that you are making plans to go to her workshop my body my home and you can sign up on the link provided in the show notes. And remember that you have to do that by September the 7th. Um, I just want to say on a personal note that I want to just give as much love as I can to the people in my life who mean the most to me. Gretchen, Meredith, Bugs, Mom, and Dad, thank you so much for loving me and for supporting me in this podcast and in everything that I do, I really can't ever communicate how much you mean to me. Thank you so much. If you are in an unsafe, unhealthy, or violent relationship and you need help, please dial the National Domestic Violence Hotline. That number is 1-800-799-7200. Again, that number is 1-800-799-SAFE.